premeditated murder, they plan out everything beforehand, even down to the most minute detail. They've got their victim chosen. They have a motive. They've got the time and the place picked out. They've got the murder weapon selected. And when the time is right, they execute their plan. And what has to absolutely stagger us this morning is that before creation, infinite centuries and ages before the universe was made, even then a premeditated murder was planned. And what is almost unfathomable, impossible to conceive, is that it was God himself who planned it. The Bible is clear about this. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit conspired together to pull off the greatest murder plot in human history. And like all other murders planned, they had their victim chosen, and he had been chosen from all eternity. And it was always God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh. They had a motive for the murder. It was the most loving motive there is, namely the glory of God in the salvation of men. And yet, they also had a location, a crime scene for the murder, and it was Golgotha, the place of the skull. They picked the time down to the second, and it's when the sacrificial lambs were being slaughtered in the temple at the Passover. They had the murder weapon selected, and it was a cross, a cruel instrument of torture and death. And then when the time was right, they executed their plan by the father, crushing his own son. You understand the mystery of history is the murder plot of the Trinity. All human history is, you understand, is the salvation collaboration by the Trinity to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. And you understand that murder plot is exactly what Isaiah displays for us in chapter 53. And what just has to clobber you this morning, the same way it clobbered me 20 years ago when I read this for the first time, is that Isaiah 53 is a prophecy. This is a prophecy. A prophetic poem that portrays the suffering and the mutilation and the death. And yes, even the resurrection of Jesus Christ 700 years before he ever even showed up to the planet. And what that means is that the Lamb of God slain for sinners is not an afterthought. This is not plan B. This isn't some last minute roll of the dice as a way to save sinners. No, no, this murder of the Messiah was a loving conspiracy planned by the Trinity before the galaxies were made. And you have to understand this chapter in so many ways, this is a mountain peak, a jugular vein, a bottomless well, an endless treasure of theological gold. This chapter is not only central to the book of Isaiah, it is central to the Bible itself. Because what this chapter is, is what I call a messianic poem of hope. A messianic poem of hope. 
And, and you know, there are lots of these in Isaiah. There's one in 42, 49, chapter 50, and here. These are poetic, prophetic portrayals of Jesus Christ and all that he would do to end the reign of sin and terror in the world. And one of the things that he would do to accomplish that was a sin-bearing death in the place of those who deserved to die, which means atonement, salvation, redemption, reconciliation. Because you understand, here was Israel. Here was Israel hardened by sin, calloused by grief, embittered by loss, rotting in Babylon. Here is the entirety of the human race Spiritually dead, slaves to sin, blinded by the devil, condemned by their guilt. And yet that is why Isaiah 53 matters. That is why the servant matters, because the servant is the solution for all of that. You see, in his love, God made a way. You know this. But do you know this? Do you know this with fresh ears? God in his love, made a way that the wrath that sinners deserve may be placed upon another. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse in our place. Christ died for sins. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. You see, that is the secret weapon of the plan. And Isaiah leaked that secret 2,700 years ago, right here in this chapter. And I'll, I'll just need you to know, we really need this, church. We really need this. Christ and him crucified, we really need this. Because this is what the Bible calls the glory of Christ. And we really need that. John Flavel, the Puritan, said this. He said, no doctrine is more excellent and worthy to be preached and studied than Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's exactly right. It's the fountain of life, the balm for the soul, the healing for the heart, the death to our fears, and the power over our secret sins. And so here we go. Here we go. The glory of Christ crucified 700 years before he was crucified. If you have your notes, either way, this is where we're going this morning. I want you to see this morning and next week, I want you to see from our text five saving achievements of the servant. Five saving achievements of the servant Jesus Christ that do three things. Make us marvel. Define our hope and fill our souls with worship. That's where we're going this morning and next week, five saving achievements of the servant that make us marvel, that define our hope and fill our souls with worship. And last week, what did we see? Let's review. First, we saw, number one, the supremacy of the servant after his death. Now listen very carefully. The, the supremacy of the servant after his death, because what did we see? We see this poem of the Messiah actually begins at the end. And by that, we mean the end of history. In other words, get this, this prophetic poem starts in the future with the glory and the supremacy and the exaltation of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. And you can see it there in verse 13. Look at the text. 
Yahweh says, behold, my servant, there he is, he will prosper. He will be high, he will be lifted up, he will be very exalted. Do you, do you see that? He will complete his mission and be lofty and exalted and matchless and supreme. And chapters 42 and 49 are clear about this. His mission? Bring justice to the earth. Salvation to the nations. Light to the world. Redemption to the Jews. He'll sit on a throne and rule the world from a throne in Jerusalem. You add it all up. The servant will recover the kingdom that Adam lost and bring paradise back to the earth. That is who the servant is. That is what the servant will do. And yet, the catch is... The catch is, to make that happen, the servant was going to have to suffer. He was going to have to suffer. Verse 14, you look and it describes a beating and even a mutilation so bad and brutal that when it was all over, he wouldn't even resemble a man anymore. That he would be beaten beyond recognition. Which is not new. We knew the servant was going to suffer. Chapters 49 and chapter 50 tell us so. What we don't know, what we don't know at this point is how his suffering and his supremacy fit together. At this point, we don't know how one and the same man could be both of these things, both a victim of such brutality and a victorious king and redeemer. We don't know. And yet, like we saw last week, verse 15 explains. It explains. Look at the text. Yes, yes, the servant would suffer, and viciously so. But what would his sufferings produce? Look at the text. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Concerning him, kings will shut their mouths. For what was not declared to them, they, they will see. And what they did not hear, they will understand. I mean, you see that. We see that he, the servant, would sprinkle many nations. And do you remember what that is? That is Leviticus language for the cleansing of sinners. That is Leviticus language for atonement. Which means the sufferings of the servant somehow, some way, they would be cleansing in their power, purifying in their effect, atoning in their value, sacrificial in their nature. How can this be? That the servant would be a savior suffering for the souls of men. And yet, that is the plan. That was always the plan. And that is how his suffering and supremacy fit together. His suffering would be the means to his supremacy. That's review. That was last week, which brings us to the second saving achievement, number two. Number two, the suffering the servant endured in his death. The suffering endured in his death. Because maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't. But the starting in chapter 49, Isaiah 49, a theme has been emerging. And it is the theme of the arm of Yahweh. The arm of Yahweh. What that is is a metaphor. It's a picture of the sovereign power of God with which he intervenes and saves his people. And interestingly, the metaphor actually began at the Exodus when God delivered his people from Egypt. All the power and the wonders and the terrors that God performed to deliver his people from Egypt, Yahweh calls all of that his arm. And what's really interesting is that 
in Isaiah 49 through 55, that theme of the arm of Yahweh emerges once again. And yet what's profound is that it's not until Isaiah chapter 53 that we understand what the arm of Yahweh is. What is the sovereign power of God with which he will intervene and save his people? What is the arm of Yahweh? And it's not revealed until chapter 53, verse 1. And we discover that the arm of Yahweh, get this, is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Look at verses 1 through 3. Isaiah says, who has believed our report or our message? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh, there it is, to whom has that been revealed? But he, the servant, or the arm of Yahweh, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of parched Ground, he had no form and no splendor that we should see him and no appearance that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. You can tell. You can tell that the arm of Yahweh is a person. A person, verse 2, who would live in obscurity. He would be unknown, unnoticed, unimpressive, seemingly insignificant. And not even just that, but verse 3, he would be despised and hated and shunned and canceled. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the people of his day would find him detestable. Are you serious? This, this is the arm of Yahweh. The one who would restore the kingdom and make all things right? How can this possibly be? There's nothing about that that's appealing. This is not how human beings would ever write the script, and yet this was always the plan. And so look at verse 1. Watch what Isaiah does. He begins with a question. He says, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? I mean, you could totally tell by the question. He's not... Looking for a show of hands? He's not looking for information. He, he is lamenting in verse 1. He is incredulous in verse 1. He is shocked and sad in verse 1. Because when he asks, who has believed our message? The answer is, very few, hardly any. When he says, to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? The answer is, very few, hardly any. You see, the point of the questions is, no one believes this. No one likes this message of a suffering Savior to save sinners from destruction. People don't like this message. Very few people believe this. I mean, even in Isaiah's day, there were prevailing expectations of the Messiah that did not believe or were not open to a murdered Messiah crushed for the sins of men. And that same resistance continued on and on until the very rejection of that Savior. In fact, John chapter 12 quotes Isaiah 53, 1, as a fulfillment. It's in your notes. Listen to what it says. At a particularly shocking moment of his rejection, John says this. Although he had done so many signs, miracles, before them, they did not believe. Here it is. Why? That the word 
of Isaiah, the prophet should be fulfilled, which he said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom was the arm of the Lord revealed? They couldn't believe it. This man with this message was the arm of the Lord. There's no way that's true. And so very few believed, very few do believe because you remember, don't you, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1? It's in your notes. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolish. This is ridiculous. This is absurd. This is nonsensical. This is illogical. But to us who are being saved, notice it is the dunamis theu. It is the power of God, he says. Indeed, Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to them who are the called, i.e. the elect, Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, we just don't care if people think the gospel is foolish. It's the power of God to save those who believe. Many will reject. Some will believe. The elect will believe. And our job is only to preach a crucified, sinless, risen, returning redeemer and just let the chips fall where they may. So let me just ask you, not accusing, just asking, are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you silent about the gospel? Ask it this way, have you ever tried to jazz the gospel up a little bit, spice the gospel up, make it more credible, more palatable, less wacko sounding to a 21st century postmodern culture? You ever try to cover up the scandal of a bloody cross, which exposes sinners to be exactly what they are, namely wretched sinners who need a savior? Who has believed our message? Look at us. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Look at us. Very few, hardly any. But in the end, it doesn't matter. We're not after their approval. We're not after their acceptance. We're not after their applause. We're not after their accolades. We're not even ultimately after their friendship. We are here to preach. And it is the message of a bludgeoned Messiah that will save them. And yet we get it. Right? We, we, we totally get it. At first, there isn't a lot of curb appeal about this message, about this message of a Savior who on the surface didn't seem to have a lot to offer. Look at verse 2. Isaiah explains who the arm of Yahweh is, and to say the least, he is extremely disappointing, at least at first. But he, the arm of Yahweh, but he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Like a root out of parched ground, he had no form and no splendor that we should see him and no appearance that we should desire him. I mean, what is that? But the lowly origins and unimpressive nature of the servant, right? 
And you notice there's a botany illustration. There's a plant illustration. Isaiah compares the Messiah to delicate vegetation growing out of the ground. He grew up, Isaiah says, like a tender plant, literally a sprig, a tiny stem, a little branch, barely emerging out of barren and dry soil. And my question is, as opposed to what? That as opposed to what? Oh, I don't know. A towering cedar? A giant sequoia? A forest of trees bearing fruit and covering the earth? Anything. Anything is better than this. And yet God had other plans for the origin of the Messiah. He, he would be lowly and unassuming and unimpressive, not the one you would expect to carry the dominion on his shoulders, chapter 9, verse 6. This is not the one that you would expect to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, slay the wicked, chapter 11, verse 4. But Yahweh knew. Yahweh knew. Look at that tiny phrase tucked at the beginning of the first, uh, beginning of the verse. But he grew up before him, literally before his face. The him is Yahweh. The him is the father. It points to the connection, the affection between the father and the son. You see, the father knew what nobody else knew because this was his eternal son, loved and adored before the foundation of the world, but through human eyes, in the lowly state of his incarnation, you would never know because he just looked like everybody else. Look at the end of verse 2. He had no form. No splendor that we should see him. No, no appearance that we should desire him. It doesn't mean he was ugly, but he didn't meet the world's criteria of what do you think a hero should look like. Isaiah says that he had no form, that one would notice him. That's the same word used of David in 1 Samuel 16. It says David was ishto'ar. He was a man of form. He was a handsome man. He was a good-looking guy to attract attention. The servant was not. Isaiah says that he had no splendor, meaning no charisma, no swagger to command a room. There was no aura about the servant, at least at first, that would get him noticed by powerful people. From a worldly, fleshly, superficial criteria, he would not be anyone's first pick to be the king of anything, let alone of the entire planet. End of the verse, the servant had no appearance, Isaiah says that we would desire him or, or, or be attracted to him, which means he just looked really normal. He wasn't the kind of guy that you would cast in a major movie role, let alone recruit him to be the savior of the human race. I love what one writer says. He says, this is not what we think the arm of the Lord should look like, he says. Our eyes are caught by a superficial splendor, and yet this man would have none of that. Our eyes flicker across a crowded room, and we don't even notice him. His splendor is not on the surface, and those who have no inclination to look beyond mere externals will never see him for who he is, let alone fall on their knees and worship him as their king. That's exactly right. I mean, think about this, was the ultimate undercover, undercover operation, wasn't it? God so incognito in human flesh that for the first 30 years of his life, very few people suspected that he was God. And yet it's worse. 
It's worse than that, isn't it? You see, not only did the servant not impress or amaze people at first, yet who he was and what he would say would make him a man utterly hated and despised and rejected and abhorred. Look at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we did not esteem him. I mean, it's clear the servant would know what it is to suffer. Not just physically, of course, which would be horrendous. But psychological suffering of being hated and despised, so despised, in fact, that Isaiah says it twice, once at the beginning, and what's at the end? Look at the verse. He was despised and forsaken of men. End of the verse. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, not because he was a gloomy or joyless man. No, he was eminently joyful, but the sorrows he endured were so many and so brutal that his life could literally be described as one of suffering. He would know what pain is better than anyone. He would stare into the darkness of the human heart, not his own, but others, and that darkness would be unleashed upon him. And finally, Isaiah says that men would hide their faces from him, which means people found him so revolting, so despicable, so utterly offensive that they would turn their backs upon him and walk away, rejecting the one who was sent to save them. This is incredible. This is Christ. 700 years before he ever even appeared. And it makes us marvel and it defines our hope and it fills our souls with worship. Why? How does it? Well, think about it. Think about what we're seeing here. Think about what Isaiah is showing us. There is a peculiar glory and beauty about Christ that our hearts were made to enjoy, isn't there? Think about it, Isaiah just showed us his supremacy as God in verses 13 through 15, and now he shows us his sufferings as a man. I mean, can you see what Isaiah is doing here? He wants us to be staggered by the wonder of the incarnation, the wonder of God made flesh. Here is Jesus Christ, fullness of deity in the weakness of humanity. Here is infinite glory with with lowest humility. Here is one at the snap of his fingers could summon thousands of battalions of angels. And yet he walked willingly into the death trap. Here is one who became fully man without ever ceasing to be fully God. And never once, never once did he use his deity to hide himself from the impact of his humanity. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that here is what Hebrews calls our merciful and faithful high priest, right? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Don't you see? He knows. He cares. He gets it. 
He knows what it's like to be a human because he himself became one and lived it all. Loneliness, he's been there. Temptation, no one experienced more of it. Rejection and pain and sorrow and even the agonies of death. My point is, here in Jesus Christ is a Savior fit to be trusted and confided in for the comfort of our souls. Let me ask you this. What what ails you this morning? What, What haunts you this morning? What afflicts you? What stalks you? What cripples you? What disturbs you with anxiety and fear and anger on this very morning? Because the call to action is clear. Go to the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Go to him. In prayer, on your knees, Bible open, don't forget your Bible, and call upon him, call upon him, and he will, through his word, meet every possible need that you have. Which brings us to the third saving achievement, number three, the substitutionary work of his death. The substitutionary work of the servant's death. And here in verses four through six, we enter into what I call nothing less than the Holy of Holies itself. The Holy of Holies. And you remember that place, right? 30 by 30 by 30 room, and in its day, the most sacred piece of real estate on the planet because Yahweh himself was there in the splendor of his glory. And once, only once a year, the high priest would enter, and what would he do on that one day? He would make atonement for the people. And what you have to understand is that the cross, the murder, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that is the real holy of holies. Because there in that moment, God and man, priest who is also the sacrifice, offered himself as an atonement for men. Look at verses 4 through 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. But we esteemed him punished, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And that text, that that right there is an absolute work of art, and you can totally tell Isaiah sets the record straight, doesn't he? He sets the record straight. 52 verse 14, he would be marred and mutilated, right? Verse 3 just said he would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And it would be easy, very easy, it was easy to misunderstand. You see, the sufferings of the servant looked like one thing on the surface, but what they actually were was something else entirely, right? He looked like a victim. He looked like a failure. He looked ridiculous, 
but even with just a single word, the holy prophet sets the record straight. Look at the first word there in verse 4. Truly, or surely, or even nevertheless. Meaning, the sorrows that he bore, they looked like they were his, and the ones that he deserved, but they were the ones, the sufferings of others. Verse 4. Surely, our griefs he carried, and our sorrows he bore them. Do you see that? Same words of verse 3. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, same words, but Isaiah pulls a bait and switch. The griefs he would carry, he says, were ours. The sorrows he would bear, he says, were ours. And yet, what griefs, what sorrows, what pains is he talking about? And the rest of the poem makes it clear. These are the pains and the sorrows and the agonies of the consequences for sin. The guilt of sin, the wrath for sin, the infinite penalties because of sin. And I hear Isaiah says that the servant, get this, he bore them on himself, which means the atonement is already clear. The pain and sorrow that sinners deserve, the servant endured them as if he deserved them. How? How can this be? How can this possibly be? This is really hard to believe. This was hard to believe. Verse 4. Our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried. But we, we esteemed him punished, struck down by God, and afflicted. Do you see what Isaiah does? It's very clever. He includes himself as if he personally watched the servant die. And he says, look, from our perspective, it really looked like he were being punished for his own sins. I mean, we all looked, we all looked at this thrashed, mutilated, mangled man, and we just assumed that he was being punished by God. And guess what? That is exactly what was happening. He was being punished by God. Just not for his own sins. I mean, imagine, beloved, imagine yourself at the cross in that moment. The clouds have rolled in. The darkness covers the land. The crowds have gathered. Standing before three men who are crucified, the thieves on the end and Christ in the middle. Each... Each were bloodied and suffering. Each were in agony and excruciating torment. Each were bearing the consequences for sin, were they not? It all looked the same. But two, two were suffering the consequences for their own sins, and one, just one, was bearing the weight for the sins of the world. It was just impossible to see through human eyes that the, that the suffering he endured, he endured for others in their place. And Isaiah sets the record straight. Enter into the holy of holies. Look at verse 5. This is how you got saved, if you are saved here this morning. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And there it is, beloved. 
There it is. The most dreadful and terrible and beautiful and glorious moment in history right there where the wrath of God concentrated in a single beam of fury on the servant. This is the pivot point of history right here. This is the centerpiece of the plan right here. This is the secret weapon of the plot of redemption right here. And all of it predicted 700 years before Christ ever even appeared. It just doesn't get old. And notice the language, gory and, and gruesome and yet staggering in its beauty. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. You see the parallels there, pierced and crushed. It's incredible. One writer said, there were no stronger expressions to be found in the Hebrew language to denote a violent and excruciating death. Isaiah reached down into the darkest well of human expression to describe the horror and the magnificence of this moment. Isaiah says that he was pierced, meaning he was impaled, speared, wounded, ripped open with violent force. That's what the word means. He says the servant would be crushed. That's a fatal crushing that kills its victims. It's to crush something so brutally that it literally turns to dust. Why so graphic, Isaiah? Why so violent and R-rated? There are kids reading this. And the reason, because this is what it took to save sinners. You understand, these are pictures of the atonement. And the bearing of, of wrath as a substitute for sinners. You see, what the servant was, was nothing less than the lightning rod of the wrath of God. People still put lightning rods on their houses. And you know why? Because in the event of the storm, when lightning strikes, the lightning rod takes the lightning in itself so that the house doesn't get struck and consumed in flames. The servant, Jesus Christ, is the lightning rod for the wrath of God hoisted up on a cross. He took the lightning of the wrath of God. He absorbed the voltage that sinners deserve. So that they don't have to be consumed in the flames of his wrath. Because notice again the sacrificial language. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He took the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. You understand that moment that was the holy of holies. Not the 30 by 30 by 30 room, but the priest who was also the lamb offering himself as a ransom for sinners. And you understand, this is how the Bible, this is how Hebrews 7 exactly interprets this moment. Look at your notes. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And I know you know this, but the death of Christ wasn't just some noble action for helpless people. This wasn't just some martyr's death 
or some noble deed. What this was, was an atonement. God estranged from God to reconcile sinners back to God. I mean, you think about it. If we cried as many tears for sin as drops of rain since creation, it would not atone for sin. We could work our bloody fingers down to the bone as an attempt to earn our salvation. It would only lead to hell. Because the price for peace was the punishment of the son. Look at verse 5. Pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Here it is. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. There it is again, the sacrificial language, the atonement language, the substitutionary language. He gets punished, we get the peace. He gets the wounds, we get well. He gets hurt and we get healing. And you know there, you know that that peace doesn't mean shallow, emotional, subjective feelings of whatever. What that is ultimately is reconciliation with God. And when it says that we get healed, what is that but the healing of the breach? The infinite chasm. The, the, the cosmic gulf between us and the Holy One because of our sin. How could this not make us marvel? How could, this, how could this not define our hope? How could this not fill our souls with worship? And why does it? Why does it? Because you know, you know that the cross of Christ solved the greatest dilemma of history, didn't it? And the dilemma is, is that God, or the solution to the dilemma, is that God made a way to find sinners not guilty without dropping the charges. Do you hear that? He made a way to find sinners not guilty without dropping the charges. Because you understand, God can't just willy-nilly forgive sinners. Oh, it's fine. He can't sweep sin under the rug of the universe and pretend like it, it never happened. No, there has to be a transaction. The nature of what sin is and the nature of God's righteousness demands that sin be punished in full. But you see, in the Son, God made a way where sinners don't have to bear that punishment. And how he did that was by giving him as a substitute for sinners. And that, you understand, is the heart of the cross. That's the heart of the cross. I, I remember as a kid, when the sun would come out, I would go outside and fry ants on the pavement with a magnifying glass. It's pretty weird and pretty creepy, but that's what kids do. And, and you position a magnifying glass in such a way so that the light from the sun is concentrated into a single beam and you incinerate the ant until there is no more ant left to incinerate. And you see, the moment of the cross was different than that. Similar, but different. You see, the father punished his own son out of infinite love and mercy. 
2,000 years ago, the father aimed his fury in a single beam of concentrated rage over one place on the earth, on a cross upon which hung his son, and the father executed his wrath until there was no more wrath left to bear. Do you see? And when it was all over, what did the son say? To Telestai, it is finished. What well, was not a cry of relief, that was a cry of victory. And listen very carefully. A few weeks ago, I said that you need to be theologians of the cross. So hear now the theology of the cross. This, this is so important. Don't, don't miss this. You have to understand is that the cross does so much more than just merely settle a score. It doesn't just settle a score. It doesn't just bring the balance to zero. No, listen carefully. The cross reconciles us back to God. It brings us to God as the treasure of our souls. You understand that, right? If you love the cross, then you must love what it was designed to do, namely get your sin out of the way and bring you home to God. Beloved, there is no more wrath left to bear in Christ. There is no more guilt left to carry. There is no more sin left to atone. Yes, life is still hard. Yes, sin is war. Yes, life is difficult. Yes, sanctification is slow. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that there are still sins left to atone. And that's enough to fill our souls with worship. And yet, and yet you remember probably the first song perhaps we ever learned as kids. Old MacDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-O, and on that farm, he had some sheep, and those sheep hated the farmer, and they went astray, and they plunged themselves into ruin and destruction, verse 6. All of us, like sheep, went astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. There it is, and you get the analogy. Although sheep are fluffy and kind of cute, there's nothing cute about this. Because like sheep, the point is, like sheep, man wanders and strays. He wanders and strays, and yet that is not an innocent wandering. That is not an innocuous wandering. That is not, a, that is not an, an innocent wandering, because what does Isaiah call it at the end of the verse? What does he call it? He calls it Iniquity. He says that's iniquity. That's a really serious Hebrew word. It means perversion. It means twisted. It means mangled. It means mutilated. It means warped and deformed. Forgiveness of which required the death of the Son of God. Yes, yes, sheep seem innocent and, and sweet, and, and maybe that's true. But the point is, sheep are also foolish and stupid and nonsensical, and irrational. The fatal flaw of sheep, and by extension human sheep, is that they go where they want and they pick their own path, but on their own, it always and only leads to destruction. That's the point. And notice what he says, all of us, like sheep, each has turned to his own way. There, there was no exception to this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God intentionally, deliberately, defiantly. You understand, that's the only thing that fallen man can do. 
Man can only, on his own, by himself, choose the God-ignoring path of iniquity, and yet, and yet, here it is again. A shocking display of sovereign grace. Under the verse, we went astray, we turned to our own way, but Yahweh caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says he struck him. He struck him with the iniquity of us all. It's a Hebrew word for a violent blow. And there it is again, the picture of the atonement. We did the wandering. He got the welts. We were the ones who strayed. He was the one who was slaughtered. And you understand, this was always the plan. There was never a time when this was not the plan. This is astonishing. The father and son made a plan to save sinners before there were any sinners to save. And at some point in time, your name came up in the conversation between the persons of the Trinity. And it was inscribed in the Lamb's book of life for whom he would die and purchase with his blood and and what can that possibly do, church? What can that possibly do but make us marvel and, and define our hope and fill our souls with worship? There's four reasons why it does, and then we're done. Four reasons why this does that. Number one, the death of the servant makes us marvel because of its sufficiency. The death of the servant makes us marvel because of its sufficiency. Did you notice the different words for sin used in the text? Did you notice this? Transgression, verse 5. Iniquity, verse 5. Iniquity, verse 6. Transgression, verse 8. Iniquities, verse 11. Sin, verse 12. Isaiah used almost every single word for sin. What is the point? The point is, listen carefully, there was no kind of sin for which he did not die. Do you hear that? His death was sufficient for every kind of sin. The whole spectrum of sins, perversion, rebellion, blasphemy, murder, idolatry, adultery, the foulest desires and deeds that flow out of the human soul and the servant forgives them all. Number two. The death of the servant defines our hope because of its ability. It defines our hope because of its ability. Its ability to do what? To purchase for us the treasures of redemption. Like justification. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Treasures like redemption. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse in our place. How about reconciliation? Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. His robes for mine, the hymn says. Oh, wonderful exchange. Clothed in sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I am justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. 
Number three, the death of the servant makes us marvel because it exposes sin's duplicity. The, the death of Christ exposes sin's evil and duplicity. You understand, that's the point of the violent language, right? That, that's, that's, the, that's the point of the marring and the mangling and the suffering and the piercing and the crushing and the wounding and the punishing. That's, that's how evil sin is. That's what it took to get sins forgiven. That's what it took to get sinners redeemed. We should look upon sin the same way a son would look upon the knife that stabbed his father to the heart. The pleasure of sin is passing, beloved. The sweetness of sin is suicidal and the delights of sin are death. Number four. The death of the servant fills our souls with worship because his death displays his beauty and his glory. The death of Christ displays his beauty and his glory. I mean, we tend to look at the suffering and the death of Christ as sort of the, the pause, the interruption of his glory when the New Testament actually says it was the apex and culmination of his glory, meaning his glory and beauty were never more evident when he suffered degradation for our sins. You understand, this is what we were made to enjoy. This is what we need for our lives, to see the glory and the beauty and the worth and the supremacy of Christ. Listen to John Owen, who said this in a book called The Glory of Christ. He said, by beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest to our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles, fears, cares, dangers, distresses, ungoverned passions, and lusts. By these, our minds are filled with chaos and darkness and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, there the mind finds rest and peace. John Flavel was exactly right. There is no doctrine more worthy to be studied and preached than the glory of Christ and him crucified. And what I want to know is, and I close with this, what I want to know is, just are you a stranger to the crucified Christ this morning? Are you, are you a stranger to him? What I want to know is, what I'm eager to know is, have you trusted in the sinless, sin-bearing servant who died in the place of those who deserved to die? Have you trusted to him? Have you yielded to him this day? Let me ask it this way. Have you ever, have you ever despaired? Did you ever get to the place in your life where you despaired in your worthless works to save you? and cast yourself on him alone? Have you despaired ever in your life of the vile waste that just seeps from the sewer which is your heart? Have you ever done that? Gotten to the place that, gotten to that place? Because you understand, have you ever been undone by the reality that sin isn't just some moral botch easily overlooked? by a mushy God. No, it is cosmic treason. The forgiveness of which required the death of the Son of God. 
because until you see that sin is deep and vile, only then can you see that salvation is true rescue of the helpless. And only then will you trust and yield to the servant. And so you know this. I've said a version of this multiple times. But you know right now that for a limited time, just for a limited time, his arms are not going to be outstretched welcoming sinners forever. It's not going to last forever. The window is closing. That's not to manipulate you. I'm just being honest with you. That's, That's very real. For a limited time, the servant stands at the right hand of the father, full of pity, full of love, ready to apply the proceeds of his death to anyone who calls on him in repentance and faith. So if you have not done so, the time is now to yield to him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. O Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? O Lord, we we hear the despair in his voice. And yet, Lord, we don't despair. We know that you will save your people, are saving your people. From every tribe and tongue and nation and people, Christ, you bought them already with your blood. Father, you're not going to go back on your son's payment. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be good theologians of the cross, that you would help us to love this, that we would would embrace, that we would hold tightly the, the, the bloody cross, knowing that it is the means, the only means to our redemption. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would unleash in us a passion and a boldness and a courage to proclaim it. Help us, Lord. Please give to us a, a great burden for lost people. Help our eyes to be opened to the lost people around us. Help us to just take our chances and go out on a limb and, and proclaim the, the life-giving, soul-saving gospel of Jesus Christ and just let the chips fall where they may. Please give us that kind of courage, Lord. Let us be your instruments to reach your elect. We're grateful for this poem. May it change us and transform us always and only for the glory of your son. In his name we pray. Amen.